Welcome to season two of the First Prez podcast. Last season was titled Gathered and Sent. It was all about our purpose and mission, being both gathered as the church to equip and encourage one another and sent to be the church in our neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. This season, we're focusing on the five values that guide all of our decisions as a church. We believe that we are called to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus, who are biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. So welcome to season two, Values and Direction. For the last several weeks, Chad and Sabrina and you and I have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Much of it seems familiar to us. We've heard some of these verses many times. When studying the Bible, it turns out that there's several ways that you can attack Scripture to understand it better. You can look at the details of the language, the vocabulary, the sentence structure. That will help you to understand the deep meaning of the words. You can look at the entire Bible story and try to understand how this particular piece of Scripture fits in to that big story narrative. But another way to look at, at, the, at Scripture is to look at the historic and the cultural setting of that particular story, looking at what is happening in the community and the culture of the people at that time to understand what the words meant to those people and the people that were hearing them for the first time. Understanding the context and history will help us to dig in to the richness of the words. Today, I want to invite you to join me as we revisit the Sermon on the Mount, picturing in our minds who was there, who was listening, what their world was like. Let's think about what it would be like to actually be in the presence of Jesus in those first few months of His ministry, surrounded by the people that we knew and the culture that we lived in. The year was probably 29 AD. We live in northern Galilee at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's a rural community, fishermen and small-time farmers, a little bit of trading. We do pretty well, considering that we are country folks. The fishing is good, and the land around the lake is fertile. But in our community, we're also frequently encountering people from Greek communities off to our east. We're intrigued by the Greeks. They have a wonderful love of learning and education, and they have a whole world of gods and goddesses. They're very dedicated to art and education, and we learn a lot from them. We also meet people from the Roman colonies that are just to our west, northwest of us where we call uh, Syria. For a hundred years, this entire region, everywhere that we live, has been governed by and taken over by the Roman Empire. We see daily evidence of Rome's influence, the government, the administration, the road building, the taxes. We're Jews, so we travel to Jerusalem occasionally for festival and holidays. But it's a long way from our homes, four days walking each way. So most of our faith life is centered around our synagogue. Teachers read the old scrolls, they recite the scriptures from memory, and then we talk about them on the Sabbath. We're pulled in many directions in our culture and in our society. We hear a lot of voices pulling us in different directions, teaching us what is important and urging us what to do. But today, 
Today is different. Something new is going on. A young teacher has been visiting the synagogues, talking about how he thinks things are now going to be different. He speaks confidently, like someone who has studied the temple in Jerusalem. But we know he's a local guy. He's from Nazareth, just a few miles away. He knows his Torah and the prophets. He quotes them perfectly. He speaks with authority and seems to have a new take on the old scriptures. Today, we saw him walking by our neighborhood, followed by his disciples. So we're going to tag along, curious to see what he might be up to. At some point, this young teacher, Jesus, climbs up a gentle hillside and sits down and begins to speak. We all make ourselves comfortable and we listen. Here comes this teacher from Nazareth who says that a new kingdom has arrived. He calls it the kingdom of God. We Jews have been waiting for just such a kingdom, a kingdom we believe would be led by a Jewish king from the line of David, predicted by the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. We have been hopeful for a military leader, someone who is strong and charismatic and powerful, to restore Israel to its glory days, the days of the kingdoms of David and Solomon. And so we're glad to sit at the feet of this charismatic teacher who talks about the establishment of a new kingdom. So the new teacher starts teaching. Jesus tells us some things about the picture that he has about this kingdom of God. And some of it sounds very familiar and comforting. He uses the words of the Old Testament that we know so well, but then he turns some of the words upside down. Where we're thinking about a military leader and a powerful king, he starts talking about weakness and grieving. We're thinking about people taking back power in our region. He talks about peacemaking. When we're thinking about retribution and revenge on the people who have oppressed us, he talks about turning the other cheek. These words sound virtuous, but they're not what we're expecting. This kingdom of God Jesus described seems upside down to everything we hope to hear. This young teacher teaches us about praying. We know about praying. We've seen our rabbis in the synagogues and standing on the street corner. They wear long flowing robes. They raise their arms and they speak eloquently, raising their voices to God, showing their skill at asking for blessings. But this Jesus tells us we can pray alone, away from any other people. He says our prayers can be brief and simple because God already knows what we need. Jesus says all we need to do is ask for what we need and God can be trusted to provide it. This is not the way that we thought the kingdom of God would look. This Jesus says that carrying a grudge is the same as murder. Killing a relationship and dishonoring a friend is the same as taking a life. He says that when someone wants something of you, surprise them and yourself with your generosity. Jesus says to perform that generosity in secret so that no one but you and God knows how freely you have given. Jesus says, love not only the people that love you, but also love the people who seem unlovable. Much of what Jesus describes is related in how we focus and where our motivations are. Jesus tells us to be salt, but it's clear that the salt is not salty for its own benefit. It serves only to increase the flavor and life of the things that it touches. It's not about being the salt that's important. It's about being salty to someone else. 
And in the same way Jesus talks about light, the light doesn't exist to shine on itself. It serves to illuminate others. The motivation of the salt and the light is to be God's influence on the people that we can encourage. That's comforting, but it's also conflicting for us. We're challenged. It's not the kingdom we expected. So this Jesus is in some ways a breath of fresh air, telling us the old story of our scriptures, but interpreting them in a new way. He's talking about a new kingdom, a kingdom in which we can become active and valuable members. But the rules that we would have in this new kingdom are not what we assume they would be. This kingdom of God, as Jesus defines it, is deeply rooted in our history and our scripture, but it's also radically new. What are we to make of this? I like this Jesus. He calms us down. He's serious. But also you can tell he cares about us. He's the kind of guy that you want to hear more from. He seems to have a clear vision of what's important in life. We like him better than our regular rabbis because of his confidence and his straightforward speech. It's compelling. But I got to tell you, this guy makes us a little uneasy. If we really do the stuff that he is asking, it's almost as though he's asking us to start our lives afresh. We'll have to give up some of the things that we have become accustomed to in this world. We may find ourselves in direct conflict with our friends, our coworkers, even our families. Love your enemies. Don't worry about how much money you've got. Turn the other cheek. Rejoice in your suffering. The meek will win in the end. Being peaceful is more important than prevailing. These are charming words. They sound really appealing, but let's be practical. The pressures on the people in Galilee in 29 AD are substantial. There's work to be done, crops to be tended, fish to be caught, Roman taxes to be paid. It's a complicated world here in Galilee in 29 AD. Jesus' words are pleasing to us, but we have bills to pay. We have burdens to carry. We have anxieties to deal with. What if, God forbid, the government puts new requirements on us? What if, God forbid, there's a plague? What if, God forbid, we lose our jobs? If indeed the kingdom of God has come, and part of its coming is changing our whole worldview, then this is serious. We need to ponder this stuff. So fast forward to Kingwood in 2020, the Sermon on the Mount. Is this just an interesting historical study? Is this simply nice teaching that sounds sweet to our ears, but nothing more? That was certainly the question on the minds of the Galileans listening to Jesus in that first year of his ministry. Does this Sermon on the Mount translate into anything applicable to changing lives? That's always the question for Bible teaching. What does it mean for me today, now? Chad is fond of asking, so what? That's his signal that we're shifting from just reading a story and listening to delightful words and then trying to translate that into our lives today. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in his letters. As he's writing to the churches, he'll finish a teaching and then say the words, therefore, therefore, that's Paul's signal to us that it's time to transform these principles into day-to-day -day life. I would suggest to you that although we've come a long way since 29 AD in Galilee, in many ways, important ways, we have not changed at all. 
One of the beautiful things about the Bible stories for me is to hear how very human the characters in the stories behave and are motivated. Can't you almost sense the hesitation, the wariness, the skepticism of those Galileans listening to Jesus' teaching? In other Bible stories about Jesus, it becomes very clear. Some people believed. Some people were curious. And some people walked away. Perhaps some were thinking to themselves, well, this all sounds very nice, but the fish still need to be caught. The children still need to be raised. The crops still need to be cared for. The Roman taxes are due. But you and I have one advantage over those first century Galileans. We now now have 2,000 years of the Christian experiment, two millennia of observing how these principles might look if they were actually played out in the lives of people. And we see that the best of civilization, the best of education, the best of health care, the best of government, the best of churches, the best of families, the best of people, all these are brought to life and fruition when these words of the Sermon of the Mount, these words of life, these beatitudes are truly played out in day-to-day life. When Jesus' words were first spoken on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee, they were new, they were radical. They were revolutionary, but now we have enough history to be able to see how they can actually guide people to better lives. Jesus was clear. He had come not so that there would never be pain or suffering or conflict in the world. He came so that we would know how to handle it. We would know how to deal with it. We would know how to overcome it when it appeared. The words of the Sermon of the Mount are not a pie-in-the-sky hopeful dream. They're blueprints. Their game plan on how to live a life and how to live it abundantly. And the use of these foundational principles establishes in us a worldview, a way of seeing life, a way of dealing with life that is different than what we do instinctively, different than what the culture of the world around us teaches us. The Sermon on the Mount was radical in 29 AD and is still radical today. Followers of Jesus are called to be radical disciples. Disciples in that day and this day don't look like the world around us. So what are we to do with the Sermon on the Mount today? I would suggest to you that there are some things that have never changed. You and I still have responsibilities in this world. Children must be raised and provided for. Work must be done. Wages must be earned. The world around us, our culture, our community, they still bombard us with messages of urgency and demands for our time and attention. We must consider if, God forbid, we might lose our jobs, or if, God forbid, there might be a pandemic, or God forbid, their government might impose burdensome obligations on us. We, like the Galileans, have fairly limited control over many of the forces that shape our world and our lives, and yet there are things we can control. We can choose our words and our priorities and our commitment to Christ's training. There are aspects of our lives, if they have become foundational for us, then they become part of our worldview. Having this new worldview, living in this kingdom of God of which Jesus speaks, will influence our family, our work, our community. When we are meek, we gain ground. When we make peace, we are valuable. If we feel beaten down, then we're probably on the right track. When we suffer, we grow. 
We will become salt to the lives of people around us. We will become light to the circumstances of our daily life. This foundational worldview, like a house built on a solid foundation, this worldview, it weathers storms. It faces challenges like COVID and financial stressors and hurricane winds with a new perspective, a different perspective than the world offers us. The world will still throw challenges at us. Viruses will assault people. Winds will blow. Rains will fall. Floods will rise. That is the way of this world. It was not surprising to the Galileans, and it shouldn't be surprising to us. The difference for a Christian, the difference for someone who has heard Jesus' call to us in this new kingdom of God, is that we can weather these storms and floods and plagues. They come and they go. But the kingdom of God, built on a rock-solid foundation, endures, and us with it. The Sermon on the Mount may have been the first time that Jesus spoke to a crowd of people outside the synagogue, but it would not be the last time. Even Jesus' closest followers, the disciples, they had to hear the good news of this kingdom of God many times before it sunk in and became part of their worldview. For the people of Galilee, becoming Jesus' followers was most often not a one-time event, but a gradual and steady learning, a persistent and recurrent hearing of Jesus and his teachings. Chad was right then when he told us that the Sermon on the Mount is both comforting and challenging. It's both soothing and convicting. Jesus meant it to be that way, and so it is for us. We will need to be comforted and challenged by these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount over and over. We will need to hear all of his other teachings retold many times. We will need to be reassured that this upside-down kingdom of God is the real thing. We will need to sit down on that hillside in Galilee and listen closely to the words that we've heard before and that we will need to hear again. And each time we hear them, each time that we think about them carefully, each time that we talk with other people about Jesus' words, our worldview gets clearer. Listen again to our scripture today, Matthew chapter 7, this time from the message translation. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words of Scripture and that you inspired Matthew to convey Jesus' message to us in this way. We pray that you burn these words into our hearts and use them to change our worldview. Teach us how to live abundant lives in this upside-down kingdom of God. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore 
Kingwood. We'll see you next time.